As you're being seated, if you go ahead and find your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 today. So the scene is the upper room. You've seen it in paintings and sculptures. And in just a few moments, Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to go through the events of the cross and the resurrection. The passion story is about to unfold. But before all that takes place, there are these quiet moments with Jesus and his inner core there in the upper room. And Jesus is going to pour out his heart to his disciples. Just share with them the deep, deep longings of his heart. He washes their feet and he institutes the Lord's Supper. And so he says to his disciples, men, this bread, this Passover bread, this is my body which is going to be broken for you. And then he passes the wine cup around and he says, this is my blood that is going to be shed to establish a new covenant between you and God so that all people may know God and taste the goodness of his salvation. Men, we are celebrating the very last Passover because in a few moments, I'm about to fulfill its meaning. Do you understand, men, the magnitude of this moment? And in the intensity of this scene, here's how Luke 23 reads. So they began to argue amongst themselves which of them it could be who was going to do this thing. And then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Now, this is a passage of Scripture that any parent, any boss, any teacher can relate to. You are trying to communicate something to people that they really need to hear. You're trying to really pour your heart out and get your point across, and the audience is looking at you going, huh? I, I, I don't hear you. In fact, Jesus' audience was fighting over foolish things. They were like, I'm not going to betray you, Lord. I, I would never do that. Maybe John would do that. John's over here going, I'm not going to betray the Lord. I'm not going to do that. Maybe Judas is going to do that. And they're arguing over who's going to betray the Lord. And then, and then they start arguing over who's the greatest. Okay, so... Jesus, if you're about to fulfill the meaning of the Passover, then that means your kingdom is going to come in. So we want to know who gets the corner office in your kingdom. Who's going to be the executive vice president? Who's going to be the finance chief, the the chair, the the, uh, the secretary of finance? Who's going to have the primo roles in your kingdom? Because we want to know which one of us is going to be the greatest. Can you imagine in the upper room? arguing over who's the greatest. Now let's realize some things about these men. Number one, these are good guys. These guys love Jesus. They had given up a lot to follow him. They had spent three years on the road with him as he taught, as he did his miracles. These guys were all in. They were invested. Number two, like most of us in the room, these men wanted to make a difference. They didn't want their lives to simply exist, but they wanted to 
use their life in some manner that would truly make a difference. There's nothing wrong with having a godly ambition that desires to use your life in a meaningful way. And number three, one day God was going to use these same men in incredible ways. In fact, other than Jesus, the core disciples were some of the most influential people who have ever walked the earth. But at this point, where they were at this point, they had the wrong focus. They had the wrong priorities. And they had the wrong attitudes. I think the disciples were taking the ride of pride. You ever taken the ride of pride? Now here's a caffeinated question for you. If you don't drink coffee, it's the Dr. Pepper question, okay? Why? Why are we so prideful? Why are we so prideful? You say, Lash, look at me. I mean, with my good looks and, and talent, how can I not be prideful? I mean, my favorite hymn, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble. When you're perfect in every way. Let's sing it all. Oh, no, you don't, you don't have to, to sing it. By the way, just because a song has the, words Lord, has the word Lord in it doesn't make it a hymn. Just, just thought, just thought I, w- I would throw that in. But often, I, I am prideful because perhaps deep down inside, I'm afraid that someone else is better than me. Or maybe I'm afraid that somebody's going to take something that I have. Or perhaps I don't feel adequate and I'm afraid that somebody's going to expose me for who I really am. And so we start taking that ride of pride and we almost use that pride as a mask to, or a wall to keep people from getting close to us. We often fail to realize that prayer our pride is a, not prayer, pride is a forerunner of all sins. You didn't know what the next sentence was either. Prayer is a forerunner of all sins would not be a good sentence, right? Okay, pride is a forerunner of all sins. It was at the root of Adam and Eve's sin. What was Adam and Eve's sin? It wasn't eating a piece of produce. The sin of Adam and Eve was that they disobeyed God and their sin was motivated by their pride And pride takes you in the opposite direction of faith. And so Jesus says, men, pride pride is going to ruin you if you keep following it. Pride draws you in with that new car smell and soft ride. Pride drives fast and reckless. The law does not apply when I grip the wheel of pride. But in the end, The right of pride leaves nothing more than a mangled mess of broken dreams, twisted relationships, and a cold soul. Pride draws you in with a loving embrace and a deep, smooth voice. Pride takes you on a whirlwind adventure. It runs through the streets. It spends all it has and throws caution to the wind. Yet when the sun sets... Pride leaves nothing more than broken hearts, hollow relationships, and a crying soul. 
The disciples, unfortunately, at this point in their life, were taking the ride of pride. When I was in the fourth grade, we had a church secretary, and her name was Miss Annabelle. Isn't that like the perfect name for a church secretary? Miss Annabelle. And so Miss Annabelle played a horrible trick on me. It's one of those things that if you did it today, you would get fired and perhaps be on the evening news. But in the early 80s, it was just funny, you know. And so she had on her desk this bottle of mace or pepper spray, something like that. And I thought it looked like a bottle of breath freshener. And so I'm fourth grade, something like that. So I, I say to her, hey, Miss Annabelle, is that breath freshener? And she says, oh, yeah, it's breath freshener. <laughs> and she gets the styrofoam cup, and she squirts it in there, and she says, smell it. It smells good. So I go, like that. And you know what happens at that point, okay? My nose is literally on fire, and my eyes are just watering. I, like, run to the church water fountain, and I'm, like, pouring water onto my face. And for about an hour, my eyes were just burning, and I couldn't see, and I, I, and I, I, I was just in a miserable state of life. Pride blinds you. It causes your eyes to clamp shut, and you can't really see things for what they really are. Pride causes you to rationalize, and rationalizing is actually rational lies. You start telling things and believing things that aren't true. You say to yourself, I'm not prideful. I'm just confident. I'm I'm not angry. I'm just passionate. Or I just don't feel like talking. I'm just quiet. I'm not lustful. I'm just a red-blooded American. I'm not greedy. I just want what's coming to me. I'm not gluttonous. I just like good old southern cooking. And pride will cause us to rationalize, and rationalizing is just rational lies. Whenever you are caught in the ride of pride, catch this. When you are caught in the ride of pride, Jesus himself could be standing before you pouring his heart out to you, and the sermon would be boring. You wouldn't be paying attention because pride blinds us from our need for worship. When I'm caught up in the tentacles of pride, it's all about me. It's about my schedule. It's about my timeline. It's about my plan, my needs. And we begin thinking that The world revolves around me. And we even subtly begin to believe that God exists just for me. He's my genie in the bottle that I call upon whenever I need him. And we can easily become like the people of Haggai's time who were so busy doing what they wanted to do that they had no time for God. Well, Jesus could have just gone off on the disciples. He could have given them a lecture like no other lecture, and he could have been just furious. But you know, Jesus was amazingly patient with the 12 disciples, 
And so he began to lean in and teach them how they could truly make a difference. So you want to be great, huh? You want to make a difference. Well, let's talk about this. Making a difference begins with a change of perspective. Look at verse 25. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles dominate them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it must not be like that among you. You see, here was the issue with the disciples. They had developed in their minds images of greatness. And the images of greatness that they had were external. They were measuring themselves by things or people that they had seen. And so they thought about the great Roman generals marching through the cities in their Rolls-Royce chariots, and they thought to themselves, oh man, how awesome would it be to be like them? How great would it be to have their power? And so when Jesus would talk about his kingdom and how he was the son of God, they began to envision themselves sitting next to Jesus on while he was on the throne and they would be in these positions of power and everybody would be looking to them and they thought to themselves, how great would it be to be great? And Jesus says, it must not be like this among you. You know, frequently our image of greatness Our image of what we want to be, it doesn't come from above or from God's Word. We develop our image of what greatness is from television or YouTube. We start seeing people that we admire, and we think to ourselves, I I would like to be like them. I would like to have their talent. I would like to have their looks. I would like to have their money, their position their power, and we start wanting to be like them, and we start thinking that's what greatness is all about. Jesus says, though, you're chasing after the wrong things, and it's not getting you to where you want to be. You see, here's the problem. When you spend all your life arguing, positioning, and wishing, you're spending your life on the wrong things. If you want to make a difference, You have to shift your perspective. Instead of finding your value and your aspirations from the external, you have to begin looking upward and realize that God has placed value intrinsically within you and become the person that He has created you to be. Well, there's a second thing that Jesus teaches His disciples. If you want to make a difference, it requires a servant's spirit. Look at verse 26. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you must become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now Jesus had done two things that night to illustrate what it looks like to be a servant. First of all, he had taken the water basin and the towel, and he had washed the disciples' feet. That was the work of the doulos, the young slave who had not yet obtained any status within the household whatsoever. The slave in the household that was given the most menial task. And here's the contrast that Jesus is painting. 
He starts out talking about the great Gentile kings, the great Roman generals, and how you want to be like them. And he says, how about this doulos over here, this young servant that nobody pays attention to, that I've tried to model for you tonight as I did the menial task of washing your feet. And then Jesus also points to the fact that he had served the meal. He had been the diakonon. He had been the deacon, the servant, the one that looks for needs and then tries to meet the needs of others. So Jesus says to the disciples, Look, men, nobody at this table is greater than me. Seriously, nobody at this table is greater than me. I created you. Take me out of the universe, and it implodes. I'm the Son of God. It's kind of a big deal. Nobody here is greater than the Son of God. Yet Jesus was not worried about his rights. He wasn't worried about how people were treating him. He wasn't worried about what people were saying about him. He wasn't even worried that one of his disciples had gone out to betray him because in the moments before the cross, Jesus was consumed with two things. He wanted to know and do the will of God, and he wanted to serve the people that he loved deeply. That's what he was consumed with. He wasn't worried about, well, this guy's doing this, and this guy's saying this, and this guy's not doing what he's supposed to do. Jesus was worried about, okay, what is the will of God because I want to be obedient to it, and I want to love these people that God has put in front of me. I want to love my one another's and serve them. He continues in verse 28. You are the ones who stood by me in my trials, and I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here's the third thing that I want you to notice. Making a difference requires that you live with the end in mind. Jesus fast-forwards to the future. And he says, one day, one day there will be the millennial kingdom, and one day you will have a throne, and one day you will be in a position of authority, but that's not today. He reminds them that in the end, God will provide them with a kingdom, but he also reminds them that today, what they need to be doing is pursuing their God. You see, whenever you quit chasing your kingdom, and you start chasing your God, you will find that in time, God will give you opportunity. When you start chasing your God, you will find that in time, God will give you opportunity and He will put you in some positions where you will get to see and be a part of something that is wildly incredible. Because you'll be a part of life change. You'll be a part of heart transformation. You'll be a part of seeing the gospel go cross-culturally. You'll be a part of seeing people come alive in Christ. You'll be a part of seeing people learn what it truly means to be alive and to have meaningful existence because their lives are being attached to the plan of eternity and to the God who has loved them before the, since before they were ever born. As I was putting this sermon together, I was in my my bedroom. And whenever I'm putting a sermon together, I, I kind of 
like to go into the stage of hyper-focus where I'm really, really just concentrating real hard. But I had the TV on this particular day, but I had the volume down. So I hadn't really been paying attention to what was on the TV. And I looked up, and it was the World's Strongest Man competition. I think I saw a couple of you guys on the competition. Anybody ever seen the World's Strongest Man competition? So, so yeah, these guys are like six foot eight and 400 pounds. I'm not exaggerating. And whenever I turned on the TV, they were doing this competition where they would sit down on the ground, they'd kind of put their feet on this board, and they had a rope, and they were pulling two buses towards them just using their muscles. I was like, wow, those guys are strong. And, and then after they, after they did that, then the next competition, they had these dumbbells, and the lightest one was 300 pounds. And they had to take that dumbbell, and then they had to lift it up above their head, and then they would go to the next one, and they would lift the, the next one above their head. And so I'm watching the world's strongest men lift these weights, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I need to go to the gym, <laughs> you know? The live stream adds 10 pounds. Are you, do you guys want me to put the weight down? No, okay. <laughs> I'm glad we reinforced the stage here, but, but I, I was thinking to myself, I could never be those guys. Well, about that time, I decided I should go back to the sermon, and so I was typing away on my computer and kind of putting together my thoughts, and then I had this moment where I was like, that's it. That's it. Here's the deal. God could care less if I can pull two buses with a rope. I'm still drinking milk but I'm probably never going to make it to six foot five. (laughs) There are so many times in life, church, when we measure ourselves by the wrong standards. We're trying to be this, be that, achieve this, and we're seeing our value as a person. If, If I can only do this, then I'll be great, then I'll get there. And God's over here saying, none of that matters. That's not what I'm after. That's not important. You are measuring yourself by the wrong standards. I want you to be who I created you to be. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I have equipped you with a spiritual gift that I planted within you so that your life can be connected to my kingdom and you can serve God's church. And there are things that you can do that other people can't do as well as you because God wired you that way and he gave you that gift and he gave you that perspective and sometimes he gave you that experience so that you could be a part of his work here on earth. And you don't have to try to be this person over here. And you don't have to try to be the guy that can move two buses. You just need to be the you that God created you to be. And cast your eyes upon him. And start chasing him and say, God, I want to be a part of your plan. I want to be the person that you've created me to be. And Lord, I need you to do a work within me that allows me to live my life not on the ride of pride, not captured by the tentacles of the world around me, but captured by your Holy Spirit so that my life can exceed the boundaries of me and my life can be connected to something that truly is great, that truly makes an eternal difference. 
Don't measure yourself by things that don't matter. Instead, look at your life and ask yourself this question. Am I loving my God with the totality of my being? And then am I loving the people that God has put right in front of me, what I call your one another's? Are you loving your one another's? And then are you going beyond yourself so that you're loving other people and caring about others? So Jesus reminds us today, let go of pride. Let go of pride. Quit looking at the world for your examples. And instead, start looking to Jesus. And when you do that, you'll be amazed at the opportunities that God gives you to be a part of something great. When the goal of your life becomes serving Him and serving others. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? The band's going to come, and they're going to lead us in worship. I want you to know that during this time, you can also pray. You can pray there at your seat. Sometimes in life, it's good to take what I call a prayer walk. Sometimes it helps just to leave your seat and come and pray at the front of the church. We designed these steps so that you could kneel here and pray and that they could be an altar for you. I'll be here on the front row if there's anything that I may pray with you about. It's always my joy to do so. My wife Stacy's over here to your left. If there's anything that you'd like her to pray with you about, she's here to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads today, and we thank you for the truth that we've seen in your word. But I ask, Lord, that they may not, it may not just be words on a page, But I pray that the truth that we've seen in your word will truly take root in our hearts and be seen in our lives so that the end result of our worship today will be a life that is following Jesus. Lord, I do pray that you will help us not to get caught up in measuring ourselves by all these things that really don't matter. Instead, Father, may we find our greatness in you. May we realize that you are the pearl of great price, that you are the one thing that truly matters. And so may we chase after you and discover that as we live out your will, you allow us to be a part of things that truly are great. And I thank you for the great things that you're doing in this church. I thank you for the stories that you're writing in hearts for the marriages that are seeing healing, for the children that are finding salvation, for the people that have walked into these doors searching for years for meaning, that have found meaning in their God and significance through life eternal. I pray, Lord, that we might be humble people who serve you and then serve others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, in Jesus' name we worship.